Hey friends, welcome to a Jesus Church podcast. You're listening to a teaching from our Sunday gatherings. We exist to join God in the renewal of all things by becoming a unified, spirit-filled family that follows the way of Jesus. And our desire is to come alongside you to encourage and equip you for that journey. So, if we can serve you in any way, please reach out to us through our website at jesuschurch.org connect. As always, we hope that this teaching increases your hope and deepens your faith. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks to the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4. This This is the word of the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Susie. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, If you don't have a Bible in front of you, you're going to need one today. We're going to be in Habakkuk 2, and you can raise your hand. Our wonderful host will bring you a Bible if you don't have one. And uh, just before we jump in, just a little bit of encouragement in case things go south this morning. I don't think that they will, but in case they do, I just want you to know that next week is going to be a really fun week. So like I said, today goes bad. Come back next week. My dear friend, uh, Keithan Schwann is going to be here teaching. Yeah, some of you know Keithan, some of you don't. Keithan was the youth pastor for about seven years, I think it was, here at a Jesus Church. Uh, he's a good friend of Jordan and I's, and he lives currently in New York City. So he's coming all the way from New York uh, with his family to be with us. So come back next week. He's going to take us deeper in our Habakkuk series. It's going to be fun. But I'm excited for this morning. It's been a minute since I've got to teach in person. I keep coming to you guys via video. So I'm pumped to be here. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that it's living and active. I pray that as we unpack it this morning, that it would be by your spirit that you speak to us. You would make the words on these pages come alive in our life, Jesus. Would you do that? We can't do that apart from you. We need you. Would you increase our faith this morning? We're expectant. God, come and move. We love you so much. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. It was the summer of my junior year of high school. I was 17 years old. It was the first time I had ever been out of the country. For the next 10 days, myself along with 20 or so other students from my youth group would run sports camps and help lay the foundation for a building that would serve as both a community center and a local church in the Dominican Republic. I left for this trip not long after I had been diagnosed. So my involvement when it came to anything that required much physical exertion was quite limited. Most of our days were spent digging ditches. And this kind of manual labor paired with the hot Dominican sun was a dangerous combination for anyone who forgot to stay hydrated. One student had already passed out, another was right on the verge, and since I wasn't able to dig, I decided I'd direct all my attention to making sure water bottles stayed full. As I was sitting on the dusty edge of a trench that my peers were shoveling, this awareness seemed to drop into my mind and began to make its way out of my brain into my mouth in the form of a question. Where are all the disabled people? 
Having been in the DR for a few days at this point, I had become acutely aware of how challenging it was to navigate a third world country whose infrastructure did not support the needs of those with mobile impairments. And then it struck me that I had not seen a single local with any physical disabilities. My curiosity quickly turned into shock when I asked one of the locals that was leading our trip why this was. Without skipping a beat, he sat down his shovel and began to explain how you will rarely, if ever, see a person with physical disabilities in the Dominican because many in that culture believe that they are experiencing this disability as a result of a curse or some kind of punishment for something that they did in a previous life. Something that which, of course, causes incredible amounts of shame in their family. So much shame that that person then is kept hidden from the community. And as a result, those with disabilities face serious discrimination and inclusion from society. Essentially, people with disabilities in the DR are destined to live disconnected from the very world they inhabit. His response still, still feels like a bad dream that I can't wake up from fast enough. Except it's not a dream at all. His explanation of reality for those I shared something in common with lit something up inside of me. How can this be? How can an entire group of people be treated as something to hide and ignore instead of someone to love and support? The needs left unmet by those surviving in the shadows opened up the door to so many more questions for me. Why is no one helping? Do other people know that people are being treated this way? How can we live in a world like this? Where is God? Where is hope? That feeling of desperation for those who are kept hidden in the shadows of society to find help and healing is not an experience that's unique to me. It may not have been a lack of representation or the sting of inequality that broke something inside of you, but many of you here today are acquainted to some degree with the experience of being overlooked and depressed. And you too, you too have found yourself asking the question of how to survive in a world like this. Maybe you're here this morning and you know what it's like to grow up in a family that neglected you when they were supposed to protect you. Maybe you found yourself subjected to a system that has a way of actually hindering those who are trying to, get, do, to do good. Or maybe you're here this morning and you know what it's like to walk through the halls of your high school and not feel safe. For anyone who has experienced the bitterness of injustice, it is clear that our longing for change goes way beyond mere desire. It is a deep-seated need for justice. As we've been navigating our way through the book of Habakkuk, one thing I hope you've noticed over these last few weeks is that we are not alone in our cries for justice. This need for justice is one that is shared and explicitly expressed by the prophet Habakkuk. As the cruelty of life was caving in on him, he too wondered how to keep going in the face of injustice. As we've been eavesdropping on Habakkuk's laments to the Lord, we started to experience how our cries for help and hope directed at God are just one voice among many and a choir of the faithful men and women who have gone before of us and have waited and wondered about when the God of, injust, of justice and mercy will move again. 
all the questions that you and I find ourselves asking about how a loving God could tolerate such cruelty are of the same kind of questions the prophet found himself wrestling with as he sought to reconcile what he had read about God and God's word with what he was seeing unfold around him. Context is key here. Context is always key. So remember back to week one of this series when Richard talked about Habakkuk, how he had grown up under the leadership of good King Josiah. It was Josiah whose desire to repair the temple led the discovery of the book of the law, the book that you and I now know as Deuteronomy. And as Josiah began to read out God's word that had been lost and abandoned, as he started to call the people back to worship and to obey God again, Habakkuk got to experience firsthand revival, firsthand godly reform sweep across a nation. Habakkuk had seen with his own eyes the power of God's word and how it can change an entire society of people. He, along with all God's people, knew the promises of blessing that followed obedience, and he also knew about the warnings of judgment and destruction if they chose instead to go their own way. He knew this. Sadly, the kings who followed Josiah did not follow in his footsteps, quite the opposite, actually. Rather than turning to the Lord for help like Josiah, the reigning king Jehoiakim was quick to turn to foreign powers for aid, which just opened up the door to all kinds of oppression and corruption to come flooding in. Jehoiakim ignored God's word ignored God's warning. His reign as king was so opposed to the rule of God that he even killed prophets who dared speak the truth. The book of Habakkuk is written against the backdrop of being ruled by this evil King Jehoiakim. Habakkuk could see exile on the horizon. And as you can imagine, he's having to wade through the absolute wreckage that has come as a result of people's infidelity to God. Like many of you, when you've seen hope and then you've lost it, it has a way of throwing us into even deeper despair. And that was true for Habakkuk. The chaos, the confusion, the cruelty that came along with this evil king's reign made life and all that he was experiencing so much more disorienting and devastating. Why? Because he had seen what can happen when you follow God's way. He had experienced revival just years ago in his not so distant past. And that despair that he now experiences causes him to question. He is questioning God's word. Friends, if you've ever found yourself questioning God's word, you're in good company. The scriptures give us permission to wrestle. But in your wrestling, don't miss what Habakkuk's lament and God's response reveals about the nature and character of God. In Habakkuk and all throughout the scriptures, we find a God who is listening. A God who is listening. Friends, in our quest for hope, God is not distant, dismissive, or disinterested. He is listening. He's listening. 
And this is why Habakkuk positions himself on the watchtower. This is where we left off last week. Habakkuk is so moved by the brokenness around him that he moves his body into a different position and he places himself on the watchtower where he waits expectantly for God's response. The watchtower, when you think about it, is literally a place of perspective. Think with me about this for just a moment. It's a high point on a city wall, a high point that allows you to see things from a different vantage point. It's a place where you wait expectantly for what is sure to come, and Habakkuk takes intentional steps to position himself here. Those steps towards a change of scenery are actually proof of his high expectation. He wanted answers. He needed hope. And so he leans in with anticipation of what God will say next. Have you leaned in with anticipation like that? I think there's some really practical wisdom here for us. If you encounter brokenness, and you try to just keep moving on with life as normal without taking a moment to stop and wait, it's easy to get stuck. And when you're stuck, it can make it really hard to hear what God is saying. It makes it really hard to receive what God might want to impart in you so that you can then re-engage your situation with the strength that you need to endure it. I wonder how many of us have grown so numb or apathetic to the brokenness around us that we've become content with just putting our heads down and adopting this mantra of just keep on on keeping on when in reality you're going nowhere. By getting to the watchtower, Habakkuk shows us that the injustice we experience on both a personal and communal level, and I want us to notice that he's not just crying out to God because of personal injustice. He's crying out on behalf of his community. Are you awake to what's happening in your community? But getting to the watchtower, he's showing us that when we are confronted with that brokenness, it ought to move us. It ought to move us, not just emotionally, not, not just intellectually, but physically move us to position ourselves in a posture, a posture of patiently but expectantly waiting to receive what God has. And it's here as Habakkuk is waiting on the watchtower that he receives God's next response. No, God doesn't give him a five-step plan. He doesn't give him a silver bullet to make all his problems go away. Instead, what comes next is a vision of hope. A vision of hope that includes some key instructions. What comes next is the burning hot core of the entire book. When I got this text, I was like, yes, this is the best part of the whole book. This is the good stuff. It's like the cream and the Oreo. I personally don't really like the cream, but it is the part that most people do love and it holds it all together. That's this part of the book. I like the sides better, but I'll take the cream. God's response includes two commands and a a vision of hope. Let's look at First, at these two commands, Habakkuk 2, 2 through 3 says, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Command number one, write it down. 
Write it down. You can feel the anticipation growing. What God is about to say is so significant that he first tells Habakkuk to write down what he's going to tell him on tablets. And this instruction, it's quite reminiscent of that moment when God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai and he's about to give him the Ten Commandments on those stone tablets. Do you remember that? The commandments were written down so that they would last. And those 10 commandments that God gave to Moses, they were instructions for the way to live. Notice they weren't just instructions for how to live. They were commands about the way to live. And so in a similar way, this vision God is about to reveal and have Habakkuk write down is about the way to live. It's about how to stay standing when the cruelty of injustice and the chaos of evil comes to knock you down. In April of 1970, Apollo 13 was the third crewed mission intended to land on the moon. However, two days into the mission, an oxygen tank in the spacecraft service module exploded, causing a critical failure that jeopardized the lives of three astronauts on board, Jim Lavelle, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert. The explosion crippled the spacecraft, leading to a loss of power, oxygen, and water, leaving the astronauts stranded in space, facing the very real possibility of not making it back to Earth alive. Desperate to stay alive, the astronauts worked together to implement makeshift solutions to conserve power and oxygen and water and remain on course, but it wasn't enough to live for long. However, six years prior to this moment, a task force led by engineer Tom Barnes discovered that the lunar module was originally intended, which was originally intended for moon landing could also be used as a lifeboat in emergency situations. So imagine you're working tirelessly against the clock to find a solution to save three astronauts' lives and then finally someone comes across the discovery that had been made six years ago. They discovered the way for these astronauts to live. If that's you, you make that discovery. You're not keeping that news to yourself, are you? No. Immediately, the astronauts and mission control start working together to navigate the crippled spacecraft back to Earth by using the lunar module as a lifeboat. And it was this discovery that played a key role in allowing the crew to splash down safely in the Pacific Ocean. In a similar way, the Lord here is giving Habakkuk and the faithful but desperate remnant of God's people a way to live. Notice that it's so important what God is about to say that he gets pretty particular about Habakkuk's penmanship. He tells him, make it plain, make it legible. What God is about to say is so important that Habakkuk needs to write with his best penmanship, not that chicken scratch that only he knows how to interpret. It needs to be legible. Why? Because it's not just for him. Yes, Habakkuk and the remnant of God's, and God's people definitely needed to know how to live in the face of horrible injustice, but we need a way too. We're like those astronauts trapped in space, watching the oxygen tanks run low, wondering how we're gonna survive. And what God is about to reveal needs to be legible so that everyone can read it. This vision is one that was meant to be passed down from generation to generation. And today is living proof that Habakkuk followed command one because here we are reading it today. This brings us to second, the second command, which is this, wait for it, wait for it. 
Habakkuk 2, 3 says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. At this point, waiting is like the full-time job of the prophet. And here again, God is preparing him to wait some more. And here's what I love. God knows that the waiting is hard for us. He knows it. So he doesn't say, now Habakkuk, I know that this isn't the timing that you wanted, but get over it. Come on, it's not that bad. God doesn't say that. No, instead, God attaches real compassion to this command to wait. Do you hear it? God is so compassionate, he continues to reassure him over and over again that this revelation will indeed come to pass. He says, I know it'll linger. I know it's gonna feel long, but you don't have to wonder while you wait. It will come to pass. God's reassurance is a fatherly acknowledgement of the pain that often accompanies our waiting. If you are in a season of waiting, he doesn't look at you with a microscope and say, are you doing it right? He leans in close like a good father and he says, I know that this hurts right now. I know that this is hard. But don't forget what I've said. Don't forget what I said. It will come to pass. After the commands to write it down and wait, we finally get to the vision of hope that we have been waiting for. It's as if our journey up until this point has been a slow climb up the hill alongside Habakkuk, carrying our tear-stained laments to the top of the watchtower. And there, as we wait, with maybe some confused expectation, God starts to focus our attention on the view that will help us see the view that will lead us to life. And this is it, Habakkuk 2.4. See, see the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. God is saying, this then is how you live, faith. How do you stand when the storm of injustice rages inside of you and all around you? Faith. How do you persevere when the hand of the oppressor is crushing you? Faith. How do you survive when you're surrounded by the wicked? Faith. This is the vision of hope, that there is a way to live. God is saying there is a way to live. What is the lifeboat that God provides to preserve his people? Faith. Now, some of you might hear that and you're like, wah, wah. (laughs) This is the great vision of hope we've been holding out for? Really? Really? If that's you, I get it. Phrases like live by faith and not by sight have become such a cliche in our modern day. Live by faith is a phrase that you'll often see embroidered on fancy pillows or monogrammed on t-shirts that are sold in the handful of Christian bookstores that are still around. Live by faith has become so cliche that its depth has been diminished to have as much value as the fluff inside the pillows that it's embroidered on. We've watered down live by faith to mean something like the best is yet to be or just keep 
blindly believing that good days are ahead. What happens when God's vision of hope to live by faith is stripped of its context, it becomes absolutely powerless to actually hold us up when the storms of life come crashing in. So how is the righteous living by faith a vision of hope? To see this vision with greater clarity, we need to first look at the two kinds of people God is contrasting. Who are the puffed up? Who are the righteous? Eugene Peterson paraphrases this vision of hope in Habakkuk 2 by saying it like this. He says, look at the man bloated by self-importance, full of himself, but soul empty. But the person in right standing before God through loyal and steady believing is fully alive, really alive. I love that. I think it's pretty revealing that living by faith here is contrasted to the way of the self-important person, the self-reliant person whose life is bloated with ego. The puffed up are those who decide for themselves what's true and look to themselves for justification. The puffed up and proud locate the source of their strength, the source of their confidence, the source of their salvation in the self. And God is saying that when you look for justification in yourself, you, you who, who has desires that aren't all bad but are definitely warped, when you look to yourself for those things, you will find none. He's saying that those who seek to secure justification in the self, unwilling to admit their need for God, will ultimately not be able to stand before him in the end. Back in chapter one, God pointed out that the strength of the Babylonians is their God. Their own strength is their God. And so, yes, the puffed up that God is talking about here are definitely the Babylonians. But the Babylonians aren't the only ones who are puffed up. Commentators point out how God's choice to not name the Babylonians explicitly here actually opens the door for us to grapple with our own tendency toward living puffed up. The sovereignty and sufficiency of self is one of the core narratives that runs often undetected through the water system of our American culture. Open almost any social media app and what you'll find is no shortage of influencers evangelizing a gospel that preaches this sovereignty of self. The gospel, this gospel is all about building your life around you. It preaches that you can do it, that you can actually do whatever you put your mind to. It encourages you to build a kingdom where you are seated on the throne, ruling your life by your own will and thus interpreting obedience and things like loyalty as an obstacle to life that ought to be avoided. We are all, every single one of us, myself included, are so prone to being pulled along by the pride of self-sufficiency. And so this vision of hope, it's one that confronts our countless attempts to anchor our happiness and security in our own competence. It's a vision that calls us to move, to move our hearts into a posture of humility instead of pride. God contrasts the puffed up person with the righteous. And who are the righteous? The righteous are those who recognize the limitations of their own understanding and instead look to God for hope. 
Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 puts it like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. In other words, the righteous admit that their understanding is not sufficient to make sense of suffering and injustice. When Paul points back to Abraham's choice to obey God's instruction, even though that instruction made absolutely no sense, even though God's instruction to him seemed absolutely absurd, Paul says this about it in Romans 4.3. Abraham believed God. He believed God. And God counted him as righteous because of what? Because of his faith. The righteous are those that remain faithful to God. They look to him rather than leaning on their own understanding. The righteous recognize that what the physical senses can see and perceive only tells a partial story. The righteous recognize that there is something happening behind the scenes of our circumstances that actually requires eyes of faith in order to really see. It's also really helpful to point out that this vision of hope that the righteous will live by faith is connected to Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. Again, Deuteronomy was the book of the Bible that King Josiah had found and that then Habakkuk grew up on, so he's familiar with this. And Deuteronomy records a song that Moses wrote, and it goes like this. I'd sing it, but I don't think y'all are ready for that. Deuteronomy 32, Moses' song says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. You see the connection. The same exact word in that's used to describe God in this song. The same exact word used to describe God as the faithful one in Moses' song is the same word used for the faith that God calls the righteous to live by in Habakkuk 2.4. To live by faith then is to anchor your confidence in the faithful God whose character is as solid as a rock the one whose ways are always just. Sure, you might not always understand his ways, but faith says that my lack of understanding does not make his word any less true. Faith is a kind of seeing that trusts in the unseen but unshakable truth of God's character and promises. Faith, it's not just some word that you throw around when you're having a bad day to make you feel better, nor is faith a way to, to spiritually bypass or to mentally ascend the pain of your reality. Friends, the Bible and Christianity is not an escape from reality. It is an absolute commitment to it. Faith means that you refuse to turn a blind eye to the brokenness around you and you show up to it. And you say, I don't get it. But God, you are who you say you are. Taylor Turkington in her book, Trembling Faith, clarifies the kind of faith we're being called to when she writes this. Faith 
isn't stoicism or resigned apathy towards suffering and injustice, nor is it naive optimism and ignored doubts and questions. Faith is the firm attachment and belonging to the covenant God and thus loyalty to him even in the trial. It's faithfulness that flushes itself out in obedience even in suffering. When you can't find a disabled person in sight because they're being hidden behind closed doors and you're desperate for justice to break in, faith says there is a way to stand. How? Three things if you're taking notes. Faith looks like remaining steadfast. Remaining steadfast, to live by faith, friends, is to hold fast and stand firm when all else is falling apart. Number two, faith looks like living consistently. We need this right now. In a day and age where so many believers and so many leaders, especially those in the church, are saying one thing and doing another thing, we need a people who will live by faith, which means they live consistently. It means that what they say they believe is actually how they live. What they believe works its way out in their everyday, ordinary lives. And number three, faith looks like waiting expectantly. The faithful live with eyes fixed on what will happen in the end, trusting that the God, the faithful God, the just judge will bring about justice. He will. There's not one moment of oppression or abuse or injustice that goes unseen by our God. A day is coming where justice will be served. In the end, the puffed up self-reliant will not stand, but those who put their faith in a faithful God can stand. When you don't know which way is up, living by faith throws you on to the one who can and ultimately will make a way. But the really good news, friends, is that God is not asking us to pull off faith on our own, to pull off faith in and of our own strength. If only the upright and righteous person makes it in the end, then those in the room right now who have a healthy amount of self-awareness might be sitting here like, crap. Sure, I'm not necessarily like the Babylonians who are hell-bent on destroying and oppressing people with my power, but righteous? That doesn't really describe me either. And if that's you, which really is all of us, Here's the beautiful thing about this vision of hope that God gives to us in Habakkuk 2.4. The beautiful thing about this vision is that it points to the way of salvation that we have access to through Jesus. Living by faith is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel, friends, it tells us the same truth that God revealed to Habakkuk, that the way that we truly live is by faith. In Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is quoting Habakkuk. 
Paul here, he's saying the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, meaning we receive the righteousness of God. How? By putting our faith in him and seeking to live out all of our days in faithfulness to him and his way. Putting our faith in the faithfulness of God's work that has come to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the work that is sure to come in the end in his final return is what gives us life. Friends, watch this, the foot of the cross. The foot of the cross is our new watchtower. As we position ourselves there and we wait there at the foot of the cross, it is there that we receive the perspective that we need It's there at the foot of the cross that we receive the perspective of his love and the power of his resurrection that provides continual comfort for our hearts and provides an anchor for our hope in the midst of ongoing injustice. The same way that you and I become righteous, which is by putting our faith in Jesus, is how we remain righteous by putting our faith in Jesus. So what do we do from here? What what does this practically look like for us to put our faith in Jesus? I think for those in the room this morning who walked in maybe hesitantly, I, I don't know what your story has been. Maybe you're like, I don't even know if I believe in all this. Maybe you've never had a moment where you've actually decided to put your faith in Jesus. If that's you, then the text today invites you to put your faith in Jesus. If you wanna know how to live, how to really live, it first comes by making a declaration, turning from the pride of life that says I'm sufficient enough myself and clings to the sufficiency of Christ. But if you have been following Jesus faithfully, but you're like, how do I actually take a step deeper into this? I think that God's instruction to Habakkuk is the same to us this morning. Number one, write it down. Do you know the promises and character of God? If you find your faith shaking in this season, write it down, write down, go through the scriptures, talk to a friend and write down what you are being revealed, what God is saying to you about what he has promised and who he is because friends, it will surely come to pass. He is a faithful God. And so we, we, we grow in our faith. We take steps deeper into our faith when we write it down and we remember and we hold it up in front of us and we allow it to direct our steps instead of our own understanding. And then number two, wait. Don't grow weary. Wait, wait with hope. Wait with faith. Wait knowing that the justice you are waiting for, though it linger, will certainly come and not delay. Friends, we serve a living God, 
a living God who through his son Jesus has entered in to our chaos and who by his spirit helps us navigate our way through fear and disorientation. For now, we wait with faith. Yes? Would you stand to your feet as we prepare to respond? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.